Brethren, um, having completed our series on the name of the church, and after much prayer and consideration, and this has been a a struggle to consider um, in terms of where to go from here, sermonically, um, what I'd like to do is in a few weeks on November 5th, begin... Um, a book study on one of the smallest books in the New Testament. In fact, it happens to be the third smallest book in the New Testament. It's small, but it is a powerful book that is filled with many, many, many important lessons, and it is the book of Philemon. The book of Philemon. I want to preach this small book first because it helps us to understand, for one thing, the power of the gospel. Now, I know you all understand that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. We all understand this, but I would say to you that we need constant reminders of the fact that we have been given the gospel and that this is the very thing that we are privileged to share with others, and we need to trust the fact that when we share the gospel, this is, in fact, the power of God unto salvation. When Paul says that he's not ashamed of the gospel and then says that it is the power of God unto salvation, that's a reminder to us of the fact that sometimes we do struggle with shame over the message of the gospel. The conference that I went to at Banner of Truth was talking about the power of the gospel and how we need to be not ashamed of it. Not only does the book of Philemon help us to think about the power of the gospel, but it helps us to think about the fact that God is not a respecter of persons. This too is a very important and crucial concept, and it is one that grounds our thinking in this important idea of of the fact that we need to broadcast the seed of the word to all flesh without distinction. Also, Philemon, I would say to you, by implication, helps us to think about the beautiful doctrine of our common salvation. Remember when Jude talks about how it is that he was going to write to his readers about our common salvation, but he was diverted because of the doctrinal errors that they were facing? That was a good subject for him to think about and consider writing about. And really, when you think about it, the fact that we have a salvation that is common whereby we stand shoulder to shoulder at the foot of the cross. This, too, is a crucial concept. And finally, this small, small book helps us to think about the privilege that we have to serve our king with a heart of willingness, that we're free now. We've been freed from the bondage and slavery to sin, and we need to use that freedom not for evil, but for good and for the glory of God. So all those lessons and more we'll find in the book of Philemon. And after our short study there, Lord willing, Hebrews. And uh, (laughs) I've been struggling over this. Uh, Hebrews, I just so much want to go through the book of Hebrews, brethren. And that's not just for me. It's such a rich, rich book that helps us to see the beauty and glory of our king. 
We have to remember that he is on the throne. Especially in times where we see such wickedness in this world, we must remember that he is always on his throne, no matter what happens in this life. And so it's with great eagerness that I look forward to getting to Hebrews after Philemon. But between now and our beginning of Philemon, I want to offer two messages that I think will be helpful to us, especially as we're going to be going into an all-church meeting in November. And I'm going to be giving a pastoral report during that meeting But in preparation for that meeting, I would like to address a few issues for the next two Sundays, this morning and next Lord's Day. And again, I believe that these will be very, very helpful for our church. And keep in mind, as I've been saying to you since I've been here, in some sense I feel like I've been airdropped into the midst of a a context of a church that, um, understandably, there have been many, many hardships that you have endured as a church. You've had many trials. And I've been trying to understand and learn about your past history, your recent history, considering all that you went through, the, through the trials that, went through, that many churches went through with respect to COVID and all the restrictions, um, especially the passing of Pastor Rob and all that you went through in, in that regard. By the way, I have to say, it's hard for me to comprehend all that you've been through, but I've been trying to understand everything that has transpired over the past several years. These have been difficult trials, but I want to say this. I am thankful and I rejoice in the fact that I'm seeing in you the understanding of Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 11. Sometimes people go through trials and they're almost destroyed by the trial, but if we understand the purpose of trials then we understand that they're designed by our good and sovereign God to refine us. And that's crucial. And I believe that you have been embracing and learning and standing on the truth of Hebrews 12.11, where the author of Hebrews says, and I'll just say it now, I believe it's Paul. He says, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. I'm thankful, brethren, that though you have been through many, many difficulties, that you understand that these trials have come by the hand of a loving Heavenly Father. And that you've been learning that this is all designed to refine you so that you would be conformed all the more to the image and likeness of Christ. We all need to learn those lessons. We all have to understand that trials come our way for a purpose. And the better we can comprehend that, the more stable we will be in our lives as we serve Christ. I've said to you repeatedly that as I have been teaching the Bible, teaching the scriptures to you and preaching the word of God, that I've been doing that and then I've been listening to you. I'll preach a sermon, then I'll, then I'll talk to people. I'll preach another sermon, then I'll talk to people. And, and I'm, I'm doing this and I'm listening, and every time I preach and listen, I, I learn about you. I have to do that because for me to minister to all of you, I have to become more of a student of who you are and where you are spiritually. 
And this especially applies to the leadership. Because remember, I said this recently from the pulpit. When Paul enjoined the church at Ephesus, the leaders, the elders at Ephesus, he said this. He said, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. Paul says to the elders, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock. There's a reason why there is that order. In order for elders to be on guard for the flock at large, they have to learn how to be on guard for one another. And so we've been working through that, endeavoring to work through that. And I would say to you that unless a leadership really gets that concept under wing, there's really not a sense in which you can have a proper orientation and direction about where you're going. No one wants to go on a long-term journey without a map. And no one should ever be advised to shoot a gun without aiming. We have to know where we're going first before we even hit the gas pedal in the vehicle. This is why I want to address this morning an important principle that I believe will help us to think about where we're going and where we ought to go as a church. What I'd like to do is address the important subject of the bounds of Christian freedom. Now, what a fool I am to imagine that I can say everything that is, can be said about the subject of Christian freedom and liberty in one sermon but like even the sermon series on the name of the church, every subject has been kind of abbreviated because, well, we'd spend a lot longer time than really we can afford. But I'm going to give you just a summary of this discussion here this morning because this really ties to a great number of thoughts and ideas. If we don't really understand the bounds of Christian freedom and if we don't really understand the things that are important versus the things that aren't in our lives, then we can find ourselves engaged in contests sometimes that are not worthy of a fight. I came from a seminary that strongly emphasizes the idea of a dispensational premillennial eschatology. <clears throat> and somehow I survived the experience. But it's really interesting when you think about how it is that a lot of the graduates who come out of uh, the master's seminary they come out with a very, very strong uh, proclivity to engage in the contest of fighting over this issue of eschatology. And I love the brethren there, and I love the teachers that taught me, and I, I, you know, it's, it's fine, but what I don't like and what I don't want to be associated with is this idea of wanting to fight and engage in a contest over eschatology. And i got to tell you, over the years in the ministry, I've had to deal with this. Because I've come from Master Seminary, I've had people come up to me expecting me to duke it out over the subject of, of, of a dispensational premillennial view of eschatology. The seminary itself has produced the mantra which says, and this is a quote, every self-respecting Calvinist is a dispensational premillennialist. I actually had a gentleman back in North Carolina who drove an hour and a half to come and visit our church and talk to me about this issue. And it was interesting. At the, at the outset, I didn't know what he wanted to, wanted to talk about. But when he came to our church, he was really eager to talk to me. I could tell that he really wanted to talk. And so after the sermon, 
he wanted to have my time and attention. I said, you know, it looks like you really want to talk about a lot of stuff. Why don't you come over for lunch? We'll talk. He did that. When we talked, I could tell by the Bible that he carried uh, and uh, by some other things that I, I kind of knew where the conversation was going to go. And he told me that he was thinking about leaving his church, that he was thinking about leaving his church because the leaders did not uphold a dispensational premillennial view of eschatology. And he repeated that mantra, saying every self-respecting Calvinist is a premillennial, a dispensational premillennialist. And I was just amazed. And I said to him, with all due respect, sir, um, after he described to me the church that he went to and everything, I thought, why would he leave this church? And I said, respectfully, no self-respecting Calvinist would make eschatology an issue of contention. These are things that, that brethren can agree to disagree over. We can have collegial discussion and debate, but separating over this, no. This is why over the years I've been very careful to separate and myself from those things and say, no, uh, we can have a debate and discussion about these things, but separating over these things, no. I encourage him to stay where he was and to work things out with his leadership. Brethren, we have to understand what hills we ought to die on and what hills we should not. And we need to understand what the bounds of Christian freedom are and what they are not. Because if we don't get these things right, we're going to make a shipwreck of a lot of things. So this morning, what I'd like for us to do is to begin with the foundation, really, of this discussion, and that is our eternal freedom in Christ. That's going to be our first consideration. What is our eternal freedom in Christ? Secondly, I'd like for us to consider, by way of review, the bounds of Christian freedom. We'll consult uh, the text of Romans 14 as well as 1 Peter 2. And then... In conclusion, I want us to consider briefly the dangers of getting all this wrong. What happens when you don't really understand the bounds of Christian freedom? Well, again, lots of problems can erupt and come about, and we have to be mindful of that. So first of all, let's consider the reality of our eternal freedom in Christ. And so the text that we've already seen, John chapter 8 and verse 31, if you want to turn there, Jesus, therefore, was saying to those Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's offspring and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you shall become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin, and the, slaves, and the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. If therefore the son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. <clears throat> you know, we have many occasions in which the Lord Jesus Christ speaks of an issue where there's a complete disparity and separation between what he is saying and what the audience is hearing and talking about. Jesus is talking about true eternal freedom. And here are the Jews, that his audience, they're, they're thinking about their material and worldly freedom. 
really not understanding the point. Because they said, we are Abraham's offspring and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you shall become free? What a remarkable statement that is. And how disillusioned it is. Israel, the nation of Israel throughout its history, had been placed in subjugation and slavery under the nations of Egypt and Assyria, Babylon, Greece, Syria, uh, uh, Assyria and Syria and Rome in the first century. They were under Roman rule. And while they enjoyed a degree of religious freedom, to some extent, we have to remember, as Will Durant reminds us, that when priests offered sacrifices, mark this, they had to offer them in the, knee, in the name of Caesar. How degrading is that? You can call that freedom, but it really isn't. Jesus bringing up the subject of slavery is remarkable. The very concept of being a slave in the first century was one of it was the most degrading thing. And they lived in a society that, that heralded and worshipped the idea of classes. So who you were in society was really everything. In the Jewish halakha, it is said that a priest takes precedence over a Levite, a Levite over an Israelite, an Israelite over a mamzer or an illegitimate child, a mamzer over a netin or a orphan, a netin over a proselyte, a proselyte over a freed slave. They didn't even include slaves in the list because they weren't even worthy of being included. To be a slave was the lowest of lows in everything. So when they're hearing and thinking, they're thinking, is a slave? What are you talking about? But when Jesus said these words, and this is crucial, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. That statement alone levels the playing field. Because we know that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There are no exceptions Every descendant from, from Adam and Eve throughout history, they fit in this category of being a slave to sin. And it is a universal reality and truth that no one can escape. You know, before the Lord saved me, I thought I was a free man. Who doesn't think that way? Right? The unbeliever says, yeah, I'm free. I had my earliest worldly tutelage about what it means to be a, a prisoner at the age of 16 after I got my driver's license and I got my 1964 Chevy Mustang and I abused that privilege and uh, I won't go through the details, but I ended up getting arrested and thrown in jail overnight. Let me offer an illustration here. In a prison cell, you have freedom. You do. You can get up off your tiny little bed and get up and walk over to the sink and wash your hands and your face maybe, and then go back to your little bed and maybe go to the, the cell door and shake it a little bit. You, can, you have all this freedom. You can roam around in inside of your tiny little prison cell. If you want to call that freedom, fine, but mark this. You're a prisoner. 
You're a prisoner. And you're limited to the domain of that prison cell. That's a picture of the natural man. Oh, he can boast of his freedom and he can boast about moving around in his prison cell, but he's in a prison. And the prison is his own sin. And there's no getting out. There's no escape. And so when Jesus says a slave does not remain in, in the house forever, the son does remain forever. If, the, if therefore the son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. What a beautiful statement. This is the gospel. You're not free. And only the son of God can make you free. Brethren, we've been freed from the prison cell of our bondage to sin, not to live for ourselves, but for the one who redeemed us. You know, before the Lord saved me, and because I had Catholic experiences in my background, and I used to uh, torture uh, Father Reginald, uh, who my, father, my parents would bring me to Father Reginald, and I would ask him all these torturous questions and everything. He could never, he, he didn't have the gospel to share with me. He just had these religious rites and candles to light and everything. None of this could relieve me of my burden of sin. And all I thought was, by virtue of my conversations with him, is that Christianity is just a list of do's and don'ts and little ceremonies. But when the Lord redeemed me, pouring out his love in my heart and changing my heart. Suddenly, his commandments became a joy and my delight. John says in 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. <clears throat> Only a child of God can say that. To the unregenerate, it's all a burden. And it's a burden that the unregenerate cannot bear. Before salvation, we were invested in nothing but rebellion. As the redeemed, we're now invested joyfully in obedience to our Lord. And that's called the miracle of salvation. And it is not just a once-for-all thing, it is an ongoing work in terms of our sanctification such that we can confess with Paul where he says, I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. <coughs> and that work will continue finally until the day of glorification because someday when he appears, John says in 1 John 3, 2, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. <clears throat> this is our freedom. Our freedom is not to live for ourselves, but to live for him who redeemed us, knowing that someday in glory, will be just like him, without the corruption of sin, having the purity of his holiness. I think one of the reasons why heaven is so incomprehensible is because we're not going to be struggling with sin. And none of us understand that. Because all that we've ever known is the battle of sin, the reality of sin, and now the battle of sin, now that we're Christians. And we will serve him there forevermore without a single complaint or shortcoming. 
Again, that seems unimaginable. But brethren, this is our future. This is our eternal freedom in Christ to live for him, for the one who redeemed us. Until that day comes, we must be careful not to abuse our freedoms in Christ in any way, shape, or form. And this is a, a very significant and difficult at times battle. And so that brings me to our, our second point. Let's consider the bounds of Christian freedom. So the text that Scott has um, already shared with us, 1 Peter chapter 2, if you'd like to turn there. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 13 beginning in verse 13. <clears throat> Peter says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. And there's so much to preach there and we're just cruising through it and I apologize. But this is a very profound and important statement. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as what? As bond slaves of God. Bond slaves of God. Brethren, it, as, as soon as we understand that our freedoms rest in this reality of our being bond slaves of God, that helps us to understand the domain and reality of what our freedoms are. Our freedoms do not consist in what we want to do or what we might prefer to do, but they consist in what God has revealed in his word. Without addition or omission. Edmund Hebert in his commentary on 1 Peter says this. He says the designation of their life as free men is Peter's approving acknowledgement of the spiritual status of his beloved readers. The fact of the freedom experienced in Christ was a treasured part of the faith of the early church. They were constantly being reminded that they were citizens of a heavenly kingdom, but that teaching of Christian freedom was capable of being misinterpreted and misused. Their freedom in Christ was not political, but that interior liberty of the Christian which results from breaking the yoke of bondage to sin or the law. So now in the new covenant of Christ's blood, Jews and Gentiles were brought together, being made one new man. And they were to define their freedoms, not based upon their previous experiences or culture, but based upon the word of God and nothing else. You know, this melding together of cultures and people from various ethnicities, this presented a great challenge to the first century church. And by the way, we face those challenges even in the modern day. And this is one of the reasons why I think it's important that we define the bounds of Christian freedom. For example, some Jews had difficulty letting go of the ceremonial law of Moses. And because of this, they were weakened in their consciences 
when it came to dealing with issues regarding festival days or the eating of, of, of food. And those Gentiles who did not understand that an idol is nothing feared, constantly feared the prospect of eating meat that might have been sacrificed to, to idols and then was sold in the common market. By the way, the day after I was saved in Okinawa, I had been invited to an Oban festival and I went to it with the, the gentleman who was the manager of our office. He invited me to an Oban festival and I thought, well, sure, I'll, I don't know what this is, but I'll go. And an Oban festival basically is a, a time where you feast together and you enjoy the foods that were sacrificed or offered up to the, uh, to the, the families who were deceased. They, if you go to Japan, where, whether mainland or the, the island, Okinawa, you can walk down the street and you can see these businesses and everything and all of a sudden you'll see this magnificent structure, a concrete structure that was one tomb for one individual and it's almost as big as a, an entire building. It's everywhere. This is their culture. And they offered up the food in order to give the essence and the spirit of the food to the deceased. But then they would take the food back and either sell it or eat it or whatever. As a young believer, I had no idea what I was doing. And I was concerned, though, that this was actually a compromise. And so these things, while we don't really face these things here in America in that way, I would say to you that there are all kinds of ways in which we have to wrestle with and contemplate how we are exercising our freedoms and whether or not we're exceeding the bounds of freedoms in what we do. But the key principle that we find in texts like Romans 14, which I'm about to read here, is this, is that the church must never reduce itself to the level of the brother who has a weaker conscience because they don't really have the right understanding that is prescribed by the will of God. And so instead of leaving the weaker brother behind, the weaker brother needs help. His burden needs to be borne and upheld by the stronger brother to help him come away from his weakness. That's what I needed as a younger believer. I needed people to help me to understand what my conscience should be governed by, by means of the word of God. If you would please turn to Romans 14. I'm going to go through this text very quickly. But this is a text that will help us to think about this very principle of the bounds of Christian freedom. Paul in Romans chapter 14 and verse 1 says this. He says, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One man has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. <clears throat> let not him who eats regard with contempt he who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? <clears throat> to his own master he stands or falls and stand he will for the Lord is able to make him stand <clears throat> one man regards one day above another another regards every day alike let each man be fully convinced in his own mind now here it is likely that he's talking about the Jews who struggled over the idea of festival holidays and how it is that they still carried the, the idea of the ceremonial law with them and the thought of heralding certain days above others. Matthew Henry comments on this very well and he says this, 
<clears throat> he says, those who thought themselves still under some kind of obligation to the ceremonial law, esteemed one day above another, kept up a respect to the times of the Passover, Pentecost, new moons, and feasts of tabernacles, thought those days better than other days, and solemnized them accordingly with particular observances, binding themselves to some religious rest and exercise on those days. Those who knew that all those things were abolished and done away by Christ's coming esteemed every day alike. So you can imagine having people brought together, Jews and Gentiles, who, who were struggling over these things and struggling with understanding the fact that Christ fulfilled the law and that the law being fulfilled in him is no longer our standard in terms of the ceremonial law. We're not offering up sacrifices every week. You know, it's interesting reading about uh, the early pilgrims in Plymouth Plantation. William Bradford wrote his book of Plymouth Plantation and talks about how it is that the Puritans really didn't observe the days that we observe. Can you imagine living in a day where they didn't observe Christmas? I mean, how would that be for you? I, I, you know, I don't know how you are with honoring Christmas, but for the Puritans, they didn't really honor Christmas. They didn't do Christmas, if we can put it that way. In fact, they kind of shunned the celebration of Christmas. In one instance, Bradford, the governor of, Pilgrim, of, of a Plymouth plantation, caught some individuals playing stool ball. Look that up on Christmas Day, and rather than working, they were playing games, and he rebuked them for it. Rather than working on Christmas Day, they were just playing games. We have to be careful about how we address things like this, and we have to understand that some men hold in regard, high regard certain days, and others don't. But Paul goes on and he says, he who observes the day observes it for the Lord, and he who eats does, it for, does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God, and he who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat and gives thanks to God. For, for not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For it is, it is to this end that Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, as I live says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then each of us shall give an account to, of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put any obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is, is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. Verse 15 is very key. Because Paul is helping us to understand that he is expositing the principle of love. Be careful not to flaunt your liberty in the presence of another brother if he's struggling with these things. He needs help. 
So he says, if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. The problem that he is is addressing is, is that some were lacking compassion for the weaker brother. And instead of having compassion, they were flaunting their freedoms. It's especially important when Paul says, for the kingdom of God, verse 17, is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. You know, all these things that Paul is talking about, food, drink, ceremonial days, you know what these things are? They are amoral things. Amoral things. These are things we don't fight about. We don't fight about, and we shouldn't be fighting about, the use of foods. Um, <clears throat> by the way, except for, if, if any of you put anchovies on pizza, I do not want to know about it, okay? We can have a fight later over that. But, uh, no, but we don't fight over things of, of what, you know, what are you going to drink or not drink, or what are you going to eat or not eat? These are amoral things. They only become moral when we abuse them. So if you eat too much food, that's called gluttony. If you drink too much wine, that's called drunkenness. But the question as to whether or not you should have one or the other, food or, uh, you know, meat or vegetables or or wine or not wine, that is not a debate. That is an amoral issue. This is why Paul says the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And then, If we don't get to chapter 15 and verse 1, we're going to miss what he is ultimately talking about. So in verse 18, he continues. He says, For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It is not good to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because he is eating. his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. Now we who are strong, chapter 15 and verse 1, notice the language, now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves let each of us please his neighbor for his good to his edification for even christ did not please himself but as it is written the reproaches of those who reproached thee fell upon me in chapter 15 and verse 1 when he says we who are strong ought that word ought we've already covered this before of philo men speaks of the idea of what you owe or a payment that you owe to another. The stronger brother owes it to the weaker brother to bear, literally hold up, lift up, and carry the burden that the weaker brother is not handling well. This is another way of saying he needs help. Don't flaunt your freedom in front of him. Help him. Help him. Bring him along. But don't you dare compel his conscience. Again, if you read chapter 14 without the beginning of chapter 15, you could miss all of this. R.C.H. Lenski, commenting on this connection between the two thoughts, says this. He says, Paul does not fall into the error of making the weakness of the weak the criterion and principle for the church. 
Paul refuses to reduce the strong to the level of the weak. The weak ought to grow strong. The way to make them strong is not to offend them, nor to contend with them in debate, but to show them forbearance and loving consideration, thereby enabling the weak to build up their strength. Very well said and summarized. When the Lord saved me, I had for years abused alcohol beforehand. I mean, honestly, brethren, I, I nearly killed myself drinking. When the Lord saved me, I struggled with the question of freedom of having a glass of wine. Because I had such a bad history with it, and I wasn't sure what I should do. And I honestly had a hard time being with other Christians who had the freedom to have a glass of wine while I was sitting there going, I don't know that that's right. And honestly, I went back and forth on this. I had some who tried to pressure me to join them in their freedom, and that didn't help. What I needed was to be allowed to grow in my understanding of the bounds of Christian freedom. Without pressure from others, to be given the freedom to choose to take a glass of wine or not on the basis of my conscience before God as revealed in Scripture. And that takes time. I also needed to learn, as a weaker brother, that I needed to avoid judging others who enjoyed freedoms that I wasn't really prepared to partake in. All these things, food, drink, observance of festival days, again, they are amoral issues. We don't fight over these things. We don't divide and separate. We don't bind the consciences of others over those things. Brethren, this is why we need to be careful to avoid crafting the crafting of rules and standards that are outside of holy writ. Because this is a part of what Paul was addressing. The idea of binding the conscience of another brother or sister in Christ is a very, very serious matter. In fact, I appreciate the wisdom of the Second London Baptist Confession speaking on the subject of Christian liberty and Christian conscience. It says this, The liberty which Christ hath purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, the, the rigor and curse of the law, and in their being delivered from this present evil world, bondage to Satan and dominion of sin from the evil of afflictions, the fear and sting of death, the victory of the grave, and everlasting damnation, as also in their free access to God and their yielding obedience unto him, not out of slavish fear, but a childlike love and willing, willing mind. All which were common also to believers under the law for the substance of them, but under the New Testament, the liberty of Christians is further enlarged in their freedom from the yoke of a ceremonial law to which the Jewish church was subjected and in greater boldness of access to the throne of grace and in fuller communications of the free spirit of God than believers under the law did 
ordinarily partake of. And then it says this, and listen to these words, God alone is Lord of the conscience. God alone is Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or not contained in it, so that to believe such doctrines or obey such commands out of conscience is to, is to betray true liberty of conscience and the requiring of an implicit faith and absolute and blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also. This is powerful, and I would say to you that this is a beautiful and powerful summary of everything we've been talking about. We have to get the question of the bounds of Christian freedom right, because if we don't, we make a shipwreck of everything. Which brings us to the third point. What are the dangers of getting this wrong? What are the dangers of getting this subject wrong, the bounds of Christian freedom? Well, let me put it in a very simple way. We've been talking about the amoral nature of what is discussed in Romans 14. And this is an important distinction. We have to think about whether or not we're talking about something that is amoral versus something that is moral or morally defined, defined by God's moral law. In Romans 4.15, the principle is very, very well stated. You have the simple dichotomy being presented here where it says, the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. If you're driving down a street, a police officer arrests you and says you just ran through a stop sign, and then you point the officer back behind you and say, sir, where's the stop sign? And then he looks back there and says, oh, well, there used to be a stop sign there. I had this happen to me, by the way. There's no stop sign. Oh, well, so there's no law. There's no violation, right? Oh, yeah, never mind. Proceed. There's not a law, there's no violation. Where there is a law, if you violate it, that's a violation. It's pretty simple. The moment we depart from the simplicity of what is stated there in Romans 4.15 is where we end up with a lot of trouble. And again, I would refer to you the Second London Baptist Confession On the subject of good works, it says this in chapter 16, section 16, it says, Good works are only such as God hath commanded in his holy word, and not such as without the warrant thereof are devised by men out of blind zeal or upon any pretense of good intentions. It's interesting that they added that. Oh, we came up with these standards of good works outside of Scripture, and we had good intentions with them. You know, I, I can't, I, that was the Pharisees. The, the Padushim, the separatists, they came up with the oral traditions out of the design and effort to try to protect the Word of God, to uphold it. They thought they were doing a good thing. 
But in establishing oral traditions, they were actually nullifying the very commandments of God that they were seeking to uphold and protect. That's what you get when you add to the word of God that which is not there. And as for the subject of good intentions, just consider the example of Uzzah, who when he saw the ark of God start to teeter and fall, remember that? And he reached out to grab the ark and prevent it from falling. But did the Lord say? He said, well, you know, you had good intentions. I'll leave it go. I'll let it go. The Lord took his life. Opine all day about your good intentions. God wants us to be more concerned about what he has revealed in his word than what you perceive your own intentions are. Whatever a man's intentions may be, the standards of obedience that are devised by men are ruinous to the Christian's privilege of liberty in and obedience to Christ. The bounds of true Christian freedom are established by nothing but God's word alone. And should we stray from this standard, <clears throat> we may find ourselves binding the consciences of others by putting a stranglehold on their true liberty in Christ. And honestly, go back and read the Gospels. Jesus issues some of the strongest rebukes and judgments against those who place a stumbling block before other brethren. Years ago, <clears throat> just a few years ago, and I know I've mentioned this, I took the time to study the subject of social justice. And you'll hear more from me about this subject because, brethren, this is now the thing that we live. This is the ether in, in which we live. Social justice, social justice, social justice. Let's have a conversation about justice. Let's just make sure it's the Lord's justice, not society's version of it. But one of the things that was so amazing to me is to consider the fact that the social justice movement, especially as it exists in the church now, has become the gateway through which the LGBT, LGBTQ community, I always have a hard time saying that, is now being ushered into the church. And it's, it's remarkable when you think about it, it's, it's think, how is this happening? How are churches receiving and embracing the LGBTQ community? Well, it's the way it has always been throughout history, through a misuse and misapplication of Scripture. And yes, they actually use Scripture to justify this idea of receiving the LGBTQ community into the church. Ken Wilson wrote a book <clears throat> entitled A Letter to My Congregation, wherein he proposes what he calls a third way as an approach to receiving the LGBTQ community into the church. This third way he describes, I'm going to read the, just a, a portion of it here, where he says this, a third way departs from the open and affirming on one side and the love the sinner, hate the sin approach by regarding the question of whether and how the biblical prohibitions apply in the case of monogamous gay relationships as a disputable matter in the Romans 14 and 15 sense. And then he says, a third way asks people who differ on this question to accept each other 
as Christ has accepted them without predicating acceptance on affirming the other's lifestyle in this and many other moral questions. And then he goes on and he talks about all the other moral compromises that they were his church and other churches with him were able to achieve by means of taking moral questions and putting them into Romans 14 and coming up with this idea of saying, you know what, you live your life the way you want to, I'll live my life the way I want to, and we'll never interact or have any kind of serious debate or discussion about it. In a sense, he's promoting the idea of indifference towards others who are in sin. But he's using Romans 14 as the vehicle to justify this compromise. Once you place the square block of a moral issue into the round hole of Romans 14, which is dealing with amoral issues, you can do anything. You can now make any moral issue an issue that we just say, well, you just do your thing and I'll do my thing and we'll just kind of be indifferent towards one another on this issue. This is tragic. And it is yet another example of scripture twisting and the misuse of scripture to the end of leading to compromise. A compromise over moral standards and ultimately what it means to be free in Christ. I'm not free to sin. And I'm not free to ignore the sins of others who are in need of the gospel ultimately. And by the way, if we love them, Rather than being indifferent to them and their sin, we want to talk to them, right? That's what real love does. Brethren, if we get the subject of the bounds of Christian freedom, if we get this subject right, then we'll have real forbearance in the body of Christ, real discipleship, and we will remain on the firm foundation of God's word and not stray from it. But if we get it wrong... Everything, everything can be lost. Man-made legalism, licentiousness, indifference towards sin, all of these things can enter into the body of Christ. This is dangerous. It is all a departure from the narrow way. Brethren, we need to remain on that narrow way, and we need to remember that our Savior calls us to follow him to hear his voice, to follow him so that we would, in fact, not depart from his narrow way. Our Lord and Savior leads us each and every day. When my task on earth is done, when by thy grace the victory is won, in death's cold wave I will not flee since God through Jordan leadeth me. Hymn number 461 will be our concluding hymn. 461, if you'd like to look at it in the hymnal, he leadeth me. The refrain says this, <clears throat> he leadeth me, he leadeth me, by his own hand he leadeth me, his faithful follower I would be, for by his hand he leadeth me. Let's stand together. Let's sing this to the Lord. <coughs> He leadeth me, O oh, blessed thought, O oh, words with heaven.
Precious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do faithfully lead us. We thank you for the Good Shepherd, our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he calls us out each and every day, calling to us as his sheep, so that we would hear his voice and follow him alone. Not the voices of men, not the voices of those who would add to or take away from the word of God, but only from our Savior. Father, we pray for grace to follow Christ each and every day, that we would in fact remain on his narrow pathway. What a joy it is, Lord, to receive your commandments and to obey them. And Lord, we falter and fail each day. We're imperfect people, but we pray, thanking you for your faithfulness and the grace to sanctify us May we grow in our obedience to you in doing so with joy in our hearts as we follow Christ. All these things we do pray and petition in the fair and precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. 